CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Today on Political Rewind, Georgia's first black senator in modern times has died. We'll look at the enormous impact civil rights champion Leroy Johnson had on the state and metro Atlanta. A new applicant for Johnny Isaacson's Senate seat wants to forgive all student loan debt, and the partisan mood in Washington grows uglier. Political Rewind starts now. Glad to have you with us for this edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, let's uh, meet the panel right away because we have a lot to talk about. Uh, AJC lead political writer Jim Galloway is with us. He, of course, writes a column for the Wednesday and Sunday edition of the paper and oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Usually by this time on Friday, we know what your Sunday column is going to look like, and usually it's posted on the web by now. It already is. What's your, what what can is, people look it for? Is, this is what, why you should worry about... Uh, U.S. diplomats being called part of the deep state. Oh, all right. Okay, so that's probably going to come into play during our conversation today. So. Jim Galloway, thank you. Uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Decatur representative, is with us today as well. And back pretty recently from your favorite time of the year, the New Yorker Festival. It's such a cool place to be. <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. Well, we're glad you're back to Thank be uh, here for Political Rewind. Um, Amy Steigerwald, political science professor from uh, Georgia State University. I know where you were until probably about 1030 or so last night. Uh, yes, indeed. You were watching the, the Kings have our legends. guys, Atlanta United, yes. win two to nothing over Philadelphia. They're moving into the conference championship they game. They are, and the next game will be a home game. Yep. And if LAFC loses, the cup, and we win, yeah. the cup will be a home game. Yeah. We may have some teams here who aren't very good at winning, but Atlanta United, Atlanta United is not having that problem. Exactly. All right. <laughs> Sam Olins is also with us. He, of course, former state attorney general before that, longtime chairman of the Cobb County Commission, and now a partner at Denton's. The world's largest law firm. Hi, Sam. <laughs> Good afternoon, sir. Thank you for being here. All right, let's get right to it. Um, Jim Galloway, we're going to start a little differently today. We've, we, there's so much partisan back and forth. It's getting nastier and nastier out there. So let's start by talking about somebody who in many ways was a champion of all, of many of the things that we all believe are right and good about who we are as people. Leroy Johnson. He passed away at age 91. Um, as I said in the opening, he was the first black state senator elected to the state Senate uh, since Reconstruction. And that's just the start of the ways in which he had made breakthroughs in our life here. Right. This was kind of the, the, the dawn of desegregation in Georgia. So it was it was it was very much at the front front end. He was elected at the same time as Carl Sanders. 1962. It was elected, it was elected governor, uh, and they were kind of a, a there was something of a match there. Uh, Sanders was 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 first. I think he could be our our first uh, uh, governor who supported integration. Of course, he was followed by less by the react by, by a reactionary, a less dramatic. Yeah, uh, but but he uh, he and he and uh, Johnson came came on at the same time. They f formed a very very quiet team. Yeah, we're going to talk about it in, in some uh, uh, depth in in a, in a couple of minutes. But uh, uh, you know, Leroy Johnson, a Grady baby, he was proud of that, and he was very proud of the fact that he was a Morehouse man. Morehouse as well, man. and and probably people would remember him most. Uh, uh, as the man who probably saved Muhammad Ali's career. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. We'll get into all that. Let's do this. The first thing I'd like to do, and then get everybody to weigh in on this, is uh, in an interview that uh, he gave a number of years ago, uh, Leroy Johnson talked about what it was like when he came to the state Senate as the first black senator um, in 1963. It would have been January of 1963. And in a very moving way, he describes how he would walk down the halls of the state capitol, try to be cheerful, say hello to all of his counterparts on both sides of the House and Senate, uh, and no one would talk to him. 
No one would ever acknowledge that he was there. And then he walked into a committee meeting one day late in the session where there was a vote on an important issue and uh, the, uh, uh, the folks in the committee were tied on what to do about the measure. And Roy Johnson picks up the story as he walked into the room. Here you go. When I opened the door and walked into the room, the senators who were at the table and had voted for and against the bill jumped up. The senators who had not spoken to me for the whole session ran over to the door and grabbed my, actually touched me and said, Senator, I need your vote. And for a moment, I wonder what happened to my blackness. Those senators who actually touched me for the first time and spoke to me for the first time had asked for their, asked me for my vote in order to get the bill that had come up and was a tie vote out of the committee to go on the floor. And I stood there with a moment of grace and I said to myself, if I did know how important the vote was, I know now. What do y'all think when you hear that, Mary Margaret? It's a lovely story. Yeah. And politics is about votes. I say that all the time. I joined the Senate in January 93, and Lieutenant Governor Howard had a ceremony that day to recognize the class of 63, which included President Carter, uh, Rex Fuqua, uh, Mr. Fuqua, uh, Carl Sanders, and Leroy Johnson. It was wonderful to kind of be on the side of the halls and see these gentlemen there that day. And the affection they had for the Senate for each other, it was very much a lesson in old school civility, which had to be changed <laughs> for Senator Johnson. Uh, it was a, I also had a case with uh, Senator Johnson at you some did. point. So uh, I followed his career closely. And he was a very important figure. Yeah. Um, you know, Sam, when Leroy Jetson says in that clip, I knew how important the vote was. He wasn't just talking about a committee vote. He was talking about the civil rights struggle for black Americans to win the vote. But, you know, and I've been reading some articles this week uh, talking about the senator. And once again, it makes you proud uh, because uh, unlike some of our sister states, uh, our state... Uh, was much, much better in the desegregation of numerous services and the ability for a new governor and new state senator to make huge change around, around our state and to do it without uh, water cannons and uh, state troopers. Yeah, Jim Galloway uh, wrote an article, Amy, back in 2008. I, you, you reposted it today on uh, the uh, AJC uh, website. And, and Amy, he points out that while Leroy Johnson was getting his opportunity to serve in the Senate and accomplishing some of the breakthroughs I want to talk about in a minute, this was George Wallace was in Alabama uh, holding the door against integration uh, in the schools, uh, in the university, and there was uh, uh, bloodshed on the streets. Most decidedly. And so one of the things that is really noticeable in Georgia is, A, that a lot of these steps were taken. And also one of the things that was also in Jim's article was the role of uh, Woodruff in helping this through and the business community. And that was one of the things um, I heard previously Ambassador Young give a similar story about how one of the things that really aided in Atlanta was that a lot of the business community said, no, we're, we're not going to have these same fights. We're not going to put Georgia yeah. in this. We're going to integrate, and everybody's going to get in line. So, Jim, let's let's. I, I love what you know. What Amy sets us up for number one. When Leroy Johnson arrived at the state uh, capitol, this was still a segregated facility. Uh, there was a white water fountain, a black water fountain, white bathrooms, black bathrooms, clearly marked, and the cafeteria for two, two lines. Well, there, apparently the blacks weren't even allowed in the and, state. And, that, and, there, and there was a small DMV office in there, too, mm -hmm. yeah. with two lines. How did uh, and, and Johnson went about changing that. What's remarkable about it is today in the era, era of social media, you could never do this. He started making those changes very quiet. Quietly. What he did was he had he had some interns working with him and and he said he started them using the white water fountain. 
And of course, you had your Capitol Guards uh, uh, do a quiet freak out. They phoned the governor, <laughs> and and that put it in Carl Sanders' uh, uh, a corner. And what you got to remember is then uh, we have powerful a uh, powerful governor now. It, then he was far more powerful. He named the Speaker of the House. He named all the committee chairmen in in, in both chambers. Uh, he had everything at his fingertips, and Carl Sanders decided that uh, the time had come. The, uh, and and he quiet the signs disappeared overnight 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 that you walked into the capitol the next morning the white and black signs were gone and carl sanders had just ordered it done it's a remarkable story it's a remarkable story and the politics of the capitol today over who controls what floor and who controls uh the two-headed cow and all the competition that uh, <laughs> who controls this uh, particular demonstration, uh, we still have a lot of conflict about that. And it, it demonstrates, again, Carl Sanders' power and his sentiment in many different ways. Uh, Senator Johnson would simply show up someplace in the cafeteria. I love that story when he just went to the line. And the and and, and the, the uh, Capitol Club. Was it the Capitol Club? Or no, it was the Congress Club. Club. But Congress before Club. you even get there, let's pick up on on what American Marcus are. He walked into the Capitol cafeteria and they said, you can't come in here. And he said, well, I'm a state senator. I'm going to have lunch here. He said, call the governor. He said, call the governor. And everyone, he, he was able to come in. He sat down with uh, one other legislator and all the white people and all the only people, they left. Yeah, left, he but he had successfully, Sam, integrated the you know, Capitol You know, Bill, he, he had, he had uh, uh, when, uh, uh, more than 10 years ago when, when, when uh, uh, Senator Johnson was telling me that story, he closed it off with a different thought. And, and that thought was, that's when I learned that you don't get the power you deserve, you get the power you earn. Oh, that's a great uh, way of saying and it. it. it, was, it was, and, and, and what he also learned was that confrontation wasn't always the only way to go about it. You know, you get that, Sam Olins. Mm -hmm. I mean, because that's what your career as a political leader has been. You get the you get the power that you earn, not the what you deserve. And and Leroy Johnson really was an example of that. The Commerce Club story that's so remarkable is at the end of the legislative session. I don't know if it was that first session he was in or a subsequent session, but they had a meeting at the a luncheon at the Commerce Club, which of course was then segregated, and Leroy Johnson showed up and said. I'm coming. I'm a member of the state senate, and they said you're not coming in here. The the the, the Mater D, whoever refused him. They took his plate away. Took his they plate took his plate and his silver away, and um, I interrupted. I love this story though, uh, and the call went again. Commerce Club. Uh, governor, Governor calls uh, Robert Woodruff. Robert Woodruff. <laughs> and, and for the, he is he is he is the founder, or the, the the chief executive of the Coca-Cola company. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Just for and, and, and Robert Woodruff says, "Give me 15 minutes." And the plate was brought back, the silverware was brought back, the luncheon continued, nothing was said. All right. I mean, that's a great great story. One other quick story before we move on. Um, another thing you said it that he is going to be known for is we all remember that Muhammad Ali, who had become world champion at a very young age, was uh, stripped of his titles when he refused the draft. He would not enter the Vietnam War. Um, he wanted to get back into boxing. There were no states that wanted anything to do with Muhammad Ali because we're very, at a polarized time, maybe not unlike what we're living through right now. And it was and, and when Leroy Johnson, through a friendship with a friend of Muhammad Ali's, was given an opportunity to see if they could reinstate Ali's boxing license here in Georgia, Leroy Johnson went to work to do that. Let's uh, listen to what he had to say about that. Well, we seem to be having a little problem with that. But, uh, Jim, essentially what happened is... Um, he fought for it. He said, yeah, we've yeah. got to get this guy his license. Yeah, you had 22 states that had rejected uh, uh, giving, give, giving Ali a license. Uh, he, he was, by the way, he was a member of the Nation of Islam. Yes. Uh, yeah, that was, was the other which thing. Was, which was uh, another, another factor in this. And what, what's, what's interesting, in, 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 by pulling this off, this was one, this was one of the most, probably most important 
social events of a of a newly empowered black electorate in the city of Atlanta. I mean, it was. I mean, it, it's it's been. It was at, up to that point. It was probably the largest collection of black power and black financing uh, the nation had ever seen. Let's let's go ahead and uh, run that clip, and then everybody talk about it. Because most people said to me, "You'll never be able to do it." If 56 cities had turned them down, or 65 cities had turned them down, how in the world do you think you're going to get it in Georgia? And the governor of Georgia is less dramatic. So how are you going to do that? Well, I believed with all my heart and soul that because I was a Mohouse man that I could do what most men could not do. Because Dr. May said to us at Mohouse that if you finish Mohouse, then you finish with a different vision. Your vision is not to be, to believe that you are less than anybody else, but to believe that you are as good or better than anybody else. Benjamin E. Mays, of course, at the time the president of uh, Morehouse uh, College. You know, Sam, it occurs to me that if Muhammad Ali had not gotten that license here in Georgia, he, it is possible that his history might be told entirely differently. He might have been the guy who was a sensational boxer as a young man, but then ran afoul of the United States government, joined a religious uh, 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 group that were uh, considered radical and uh, uh, outlaws by many people's standards, and that might have been the only thing we'd ever think about with Muhammad Ali, if not for his getting that license. Well, true. It's also the, the beauty of sports and the ability to bring people together. Right. And Muhammad Ali had that ability to clearly bring people together. Yeah. yeah. And then he comes to Atlanta for the opening of the Olympics. That 1996 Muhammad Ali torch lighting. Yeah. yeah. Um, Amy, any final thought that you want to give us before we say a fond farewell to uh, Leroy Johnson? It's a legacy that I think we all subscribe to, to be able to do both the big things and the small that really change them for everybody around us. Jim? Uh, you know, what's interesting is, is I, uh, I was, uh, when, I, when I put that post up uh, and started looking at Twitter and to see who was reading it, and Carl Sanders' granddaughter. Oh, that's no. terrific. Had read it. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's do this. Uh, again, we remember fondly uh, Leroy Johnson and his accomplishments uh, for the state of Georgia, more important for all of us as people. Uh, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way and come back, and let's start talking about politics, because there's an awful lot to discuss. This is Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, we know just a bit more now about the shape that the Democratic debate here on November 20th will take. And by that, I mean, we now know that the ninth candidate has qualified to be on the stage. It's uh, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. Um, and, and I wonder what the impact of her presence could mean in terms of what we see is this very strong divide on those stages between the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders faction and the uh, uh, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg. Mm -hmm. Are we going to see sort of the moderates have a little bit more impact because I of this? I, th I think so. I think so. I think what, what you, I mean, you saw in the fourth debate in Westville, Ohio, you saw uh, Klobuchar and, and Pete Buttigieg actually have, have quite the moment. Uh, and and they, mm -hmm. they, they got the best reviews, really, uh, out of that, that three-hour session there. And bringing Klobuchar uh, onto the Atlanta stage, that means, that means uh, uh, the centrist position is going to get a little more oomph, I think. Uh, and to me, it's it's interesting. Now you will have uh, is it three women on the stage? Now you'll have Kamala Hillary. Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and, Warren, and Amy Klobuchar. Yes. And 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 I think given the 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 the, the moderating team, I think that w might be important. Um, so uh, probably Amy, uh, if there is a more centrist bent to this mm -hmm. uh, uh, conversation, they're going to have that accrues to the benefit of Georgia Democrats, doesn't it? 
most decidedly. I mean, I think that you've got sort of this middle ground of trying to show what it is of where the party is. Um, I know one of the things we're discussing later are polls that have come out recently sort of showing uh, how, uh, for example, are Democrats viewed, are they socialists or yeah. are they trying to be capitalists? And that's certainly a larger debate that is going on and how these various issues are being presented. And so I think that this is a way to sort of broaden and show that definitely in the same way that the Republican Party is not a monolith, neither is the Democratic Party. I've been following Senator Klobuchar since the Brian Kavanaugh debates. Oh. Uh, noticed her there, uh, how she conducted herself, the questions she asked, and following her closely during these debates. The geography of the Midwest is very important in this election, and the fact that Mayor Buttigieg and Senator Klobuchar are both rising in the polls and emphasizing the importance of the Midwest, I think, is to a benefit of our ongoing discussion. Sam, I've asked this on the show before, and I'm always interested in what various people who are panelists uh, in our rotation have to say about it. I wonder whether there are Georgia Democrats. I mean, the, having a more centrist viewpoint might be helpful, but I wonder how enthusiastic, given the purple nature of the state, some are about having the most liberal views of the party, the Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, Medicare for all positions, uh, how much value that has for Georgia, uh, the independents, the swing voters there, whether that's a problem for some Democrats. So while we talk about Amy and Pete having very good performances in Ohio, and I certainly agree, I thought Pete in particular was, yeah. was excellent uh, and certainly very, very bright individual. Um, three percent is not exactly rising. Yeah, you know, I mean, let's face this it. This is what Amy, Amy Klobuchar. Amy, Amy. So right. still, yeah. well, and even Pete. I mean, you know, if you if you're not close to ten. Well, there's some polls that have him in Iowa, well up into I'm Iowa. Yeah, in right. Iowa. Well, well he's from important Indiana. first state, though. A absolutely. But go ahead. But you know, but I, I still think that uh, look, if you're the president, you want Bernie and Elizabeth to get all the yeah. all the air. Uh, if you're a, a suburban Republican, <laughs> Amy and Pete are your nightmare, right, at that point. Uh, and, uh, and, and clearly the White House is going to be paying attention because uh, your comment about independence I totally agree with. But I think suburban Republican women are, are just as crucial in this next election. Suburban women, yeah. however they identify. And I, they probably don't identify particularly because they're mm -hmm. mostly apolitical, but they're, very, but they're voters. And they do concern themselves with the quality of life issues. Mm -hmm. And reproductive rights and healthy air uh, are very important to them as an environment for their families and their children and their own economic viability. As we've said on this program earlier this fall, uh, what's going on in Washington is such a diversion to what's the necessity of the discussion about our presidential candidates. I don't think that most people are focusing yet, and they will be, um, I think probably after Christmas is when the real heat of mm -hmm. the pending, coming soon elections will be, will be held. That's why 3% or 10% um, is not as worrisome to me in terms of understanding what really will be happening in the first of 2020. Amy, I wonder if um, the, the fact of the matter is, I've, this is the way I framed the question before, if you're Lucy McBath, you won by a very small percentage against Karen Handel last time out. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're trying very hard to be cautious about you walk, how you walk that tightrope uh, between being a strong um, progressive Democrat and being a more conservative Democrat. I, I just wonder if you want Elizabeth Warren talking about Medicare for all right down the street from your district or from where you are. <laughs> I think part of the issue, though, is that if we're worried about, if we're now talking about sort of who the eventual nominee is and what's going to get played, I think it doesn't really matter who wins. They're still going to be playing ads that suggest the Democrats yeah. want Medicare Good for point. all. Good right? point. Right. They're going to be running ads that suggest that whoever it is is a socialist. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, at one point, I'd found there was a great poll where uh, from Gallup where they asked uh, to what degree people thought that 
uh, the Democrats were socialists and the date on it was 1950. So it's been a longstanding <laughs> sort of issue there in the same way that it kind of doesn't matter who's on the Republican side, right, with a lot of these ads. And so I think that is less of it. I think what's more going to happen is sort of focus on the issues that people care about at home and really pushing, because right now we're also having all of this debate because there is no real other side, right? Yeah. All of the policy discussion is on the Democratic side, but at some point it's going to be the Democratic view versus the Republican view, at which point I think that's where it becomes much more. And so both sides now have to answer as opposed to this kind of internal dispute. All right. Well, while you got the ball, let me ask you a different question. You've uh, devoted a good amount of your time as a, as, a prof as a writer, as a researcher to looking at women in mm -hmm. uh, politics. The fact that we've got uh, Andrea Mitchell, Rachel Maddow, and uh, Kristen... Ashley Parker. Ashley Parker from the Washington Post, right, and Kristen Welker exactly. from NBC, four women moderating this thing. I, what struck me about that was I remember in the last debate, the Ohio debate, at one point um, Kamala Harris talked about reproductive mm -hmm. rights, as she described it, and said we've gone this far into like three, four debates. I think that was the fourth debate, mm -hmm. and nobody's been talking about reproductive rights. And that four women issue. moderating? I think women's issues may rise to the fore, yes? I think it's very possible, because that particular issue has gotten a lot of pushback from people about the topics that are being asked about, especially of those that care, that voters really do care about. I mean, to be perfectly blunt, many more voters on both sides of the aisle vote on issues like reproductive rights than on a lot of things they've been asking about, and the fact that it hasn't been asked is a huge issue. Um, I also think, if I could just real quick, um, you've also got a couple of new mothers on that panel, uh, particularly Ashley Parker and uh, Kristen Wilk. And I think right. that could be an issue that comes up there as well, because this very real issue of child care, of dual income families, of what it means, right, for people to be able to succeed and to be able to work, to be able to contribute in society. And so I think those are probably issues we might see as well. Yeah, um, I, I would say it, it's uh, just to, to, to further on your, your point here, I think uh, uh, HB 481 could really be mm. showcased sure. yeah. uh, uh, in, in Atlanta next month. Uh, I think that will be a, a very, very sharp top, uh, talking point there. Uh, the other part of this, of course, this is, this is not the first all-female panel. We've had a couple before that. But this is the first one since, uh, since uh, the, the, the Me Too movement really took off yeah. two years ago. Yeah, yeah, I was to say, yes, in past presidential cycles, we have had panels with a, mm -hmm. a couple of women on them. I mean, solely mm -hmm. women as panelists. Um, economic... Uh, 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 equality, also the kind of issue that might very well come up if with a panel of four women. Sam? You know, I always find that topic challenging because everyone has different facts. It's one of those areas where um, it's really easy if you're a statistician to play with numbers to say whatever you want. Um, I, I frankly, candidly, was much more interested this past week in the fact that you had a uh, spacewalk with two women than four mm. women that would be uh, moderating the debate. I think that spoke far more to the gains that this country has accomplished. I saw Mary Margaret's, I just saw the hairs uh, on the too. back of her neck, right? <laughs> me, me too. There was a small grimace there. You said it's not factual. Consent. There's no factual consensus that women are not doing as well in the economy as men. I do believe that is an undisputed fact. Women do make less money. They do have the reality in every real-world analysis of carrying most of the burdens of the family, caring for the elderly parents, and the baby getting to daycare. Uh, I'm very heartened that there are four women commentators and three presidential candidates on the stage. And the family issues for the Kurds and the Syrians and the children in cages on the border um, are issues that are very visual, very topical, and very important as we move into a real discussion of what is our international policy in the mess and the chaos that is created by the Trump. And of course, we wouldn't want to mention that the cages started under the last president and not the current president, would we? I, yeah, I, I get you. All right. The leaving that, what Wait. could be interesting, though, is to see whether or not we finally get some questions on some level that are actually about 
issues that the president has power over. Um, a lot of the questions have been asked about things that the president really doesn't play a role in. Um, they don't introduce legislation. They don't pass legislation. They can sign it. But we haven't had a lot of questions about foreign policy. We haven't had mm -hmm. as many about um, executive power and reach of executive power. What will they use executive orders on? And so that could be interesting. Uh, Jim, here's the thing. I think it's probably true that you know, 481 becomes an issue uh, when the debate arrives. Um, you know, economic uh, equality, which uh, Mary Margaret believes is a, is a really important issue, so do many people. I mean, here's the problem with those. Who on that stage is not going to condemn HB 481? Which Democratic candidate for president? What kind of conversation are you going to be able to have, and how do you even frame questions? Well, the only permutation you've got there is, is actually Biden, but he is, I, I mean, he has even come along a little bit for yeah, I mean, federal funding for it. But the, I think the point is, I think the point is it will come out to uh, the, the audience, the, 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 the target won't be this, the people right. on the stage. Right. The target will be the people, the people who are listening and right. who are watching. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, the other thing we don't know yet, Jim, and uh, I was kidding with uh, your colleague Greg Bluestein the other day, uh, the, the riddle right now is um, what's an issue that only political junkies and people who uh, cover politics are interested in right now? The answer is where they're going to stage the Democratic <laughs> debate. We still don't know. We still, and and I, I get the feeling. I get the feeling that the the news about the moderator was kind of a bone that was tossed to journalists just to keep them give them something to chew on while they tried to figure the other one out. Sam, you got some place up there in uh, Cobb County. You're still a Cobb in, County in Minnesota uh, State, maybe. Yeah. I'm sorry, why am I here? <laughs> you know, I, I, what I was going to comment on differently. Go ahead, that, comment is, on what um, you want to. You made a comment about executive uh, action orders. You know, under yeah. President Obama, everyone said, oh my God, the, what happened to the rule of law? He's issuing all these executive orders. Well, now you have President Trump doing just as much if not more. So when you have dysfunction in Congress, the president might mm -hmm. not uh, write the laws, but boy, do they take advantage of that executive order. And, and I think as Americans, we have a, uh, we've permitted the presidents to have excessive power. Which uh, gives us a great transition to talking about what's happening this week, particularly with regard to Georgians up on the Hill, to the impeachment probe. I think, uh, Mary Margaret, you could take what Sam just uh, talked about and say, well, exactly. That's why the Democratic House is now conducting an inquiry to find out, to assert their power in, in holding the president accountable for his actions. Congress is dysfunctional. It, uh, Mitch McConnell's, let's start with Merrick Garland, the most shocking exercise of congressional dysfunction I've seen. Um, and the movements that are happening this week highlighted by the quote-unquote frat boy storming of a committee room where they were actually, many of them were authorized members of the committee, uh, was a real demonstration of how low, each day it looks a little, looks like it's getting a little lower, but the frat boy storming of a committee room, showing up their, holding up their phones, was one of the new lows for me. What did you think when you saw that, Sam? We had, and let's put it in the Georgia context, there were three Georgia House members, Republicans, Jody Heiss was there, Buddy Carter, and Rick Allen all went in the room. It's important to point out that Jody Heiss was always already a member of one of the committees that's conducting the hearing, so he didn't have to storm the room. He was already welcome inside and could ask questions. So there's two processes occurring here. There's the legal process and the political process. It would appear that the House has the legal authority to do what they're doing, and it would appear that the Democrats are getting very nervous about the political view. And I think that's what a group of Republicans did earlier this week that you're referencing. You know, I, I very much respect Judge Napolitano. Um, for those that read his opinions, he's been very critical of the White House on this issue. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and, and I think what we're seeing here, we're seeing, we're seeing a. Uh, th this is a reaction to the Mueller report, where where, where Republicans for so long were, were able to control the narrative, 
on, on, on as that was released. And I think this is a reaction by the, by Democrats in the House to say, we're not going to let that happen. We're going to con control the narrative as long as we can. Yes, but Amy, um, the Democrats are also starting to be clearly concerned about, you know, they have all sorts of reasons that they can establish for why they're doing this mm -hmm. behind closed doors. In the same way that Trey Gowdy, when he conducted his Benghazi investigation of Hillary Clinton, did it all behind closed doors until he finally opened it up. But we're not living in the Trey Gowdy world anymore. We're living under, with, with a President Trump who holds who doesn't need a war room because he goes out and stands by the helicopter every day and gets his message out loud and clear. And the message that he gets out, and Republicans like David Perdue, who yesterday was one of the signatories, one of the leading sponsors of the measure in the Senate condemning mm -hmm. the impeachment inquiry, um, they're, they're responding to the fact that Democrats are continuing to meet behind closed doors. And, there's, and, and I think Democrats are starting to feel like it's true, we're going to have to open this up at some point pretty soon or we're going to lose some people to this other narrative. From what I've seen, I think there's differing points of view on that in the sense that part of the reason that they say that they're doing this is that they're still trying to just simply gather facts and gather information. And there's concern about whether or not witnesses are getting together ahead of time and trying to get their story straight. And so that's part of what's going on here. And I think we saw that in uh, the suggestions, for example, that they might have to bring back um, Ambassador Sondland mm -hmm. after they had interviewed um Ambassador Taylor. And so I think we see it. Because they're now saying that Sondland may have um, misled them in terms exactly. of the way he answered. Misled yeah. or, as he's now saying, did not recall certain yeah. things yeah. of information that's coming up there. Um, I think the other issue that's really difficult here, and I would agree that the Democrats have been terrible on explaining this, is that impeachment is not, in fact, removal of the president. Yeah. The impeachment process that's going on in the House is more akin to the indictment of someone for a criminal charge. It's a grand and so it's, it's a grand jury. It's, it is, in fact, simply the investigatory party. Uh, the defense is not in that. And then it has to go over to the Senate and do sort of a full airing. Um, when it comes to the Senate resolution, in some ways, what, in fact, was most intriguing about that was two things, really. The substance of it was only about the process. There was not, in right. fact, anything about whether or not the reasons for conducting the inquiry were problematic. So that's notable. The second one is that they didn't actually have unanimous Republican support for it. And they also didn't weren't able to get any Democrats on it. And so that is, I think there at least is some indication or some people are suggesting that this might have been as much a signal to Trump of be careful. You don't have as much support as you think that you ah, do. And so now we need to, you know, sort of address that. David Perdue, uh, Mary Margaret, as I throw it to you, uh, tweeted uh, about the impeachment uh, resolution that they had in the Senate. Um, let me see. I can find it here. Uh, essentially, it was, it was, you know. Called it illegal, I think. Yeah, here we go. Well, uh, it's, it's not illegal, as we know. And we also know that David Perdue is going to be predictable only on one message. So what he says is not totally um, relevant to me in terms of he's playing his political role on behalf what, of the president. Let me what, interrupt long enough to say, Speaker Pelosi and House Democrats have abandoned decades of precedent and denied basic due process rights with their partisan show trial. Go ahead. So that's the kind of language he uses. It's 100% partisan. It's 100% for the president. It's predictable. And so it's not particular. Well, where isn't there a partisan message going out from either I side? I think Mary if Margaret. you look yesterday at the New York Times, front page of the New York Times, it's a picture of these children with their heads coming out of some kind of jail cell saying, what's going to happen to us? And if let's go back to when are Georgia voters going to start paying attention to what's happening in Washington? Right now, they're turned off. My, my, my view is they're turned off right now. It looks awful, awful, and uh, it's not illuminating anything new. But sometime soon, the disaster and scariness of what the president's quote-unquote foreign policy is, tweeting and pulling troops here and there, in our strong military state and in our thoughtful voters is going to become much more relevant to the central inquiry of can this 
men in the presidency, this gentleman in the presidency, continue to serve us without really endangering our national interest. But Sam, I think it would be fair to argue that one of the reasons that people aren't paying attention to what might be more basic issues that Mary Margaret illuminates, that Amy talked about a minute ago, is the, the fog of war, the partisan war about impeachment, about the abuses alleged by the president, about Democrats uh, abusing their power. I mean, it it covers up everything else that people might want to hear more about. Look, can, can we not just be straight enough to acknowledge that both sides are hypocrites? I mean, that the fact of the matter is, if you look at the uh, time where President Obama didn't know the mic was on and said to the Soviet, to the Russian, you know, after I win re-election, I can do some deals with you I can't do now. Okay, imagine that was President Trump who said that. Next day, impeachment inquiry. You know, we live in a world where everyone says what they want to say for partisan real reasons and frankly disregards the needs of our country. I'm not, I'm not going to disagree that we're in the age of moral relativism. Uh, but but I would I would I would say that when when Obama had that mic mic on and it was still live and he said I can do some de deals, I don't think he was talking about personal deals. He was talking about national business. No, I, I agree. This is a, this personal. is the distinction in the Ukraine situation. I'm not sure that there's a distinction. The whole idea that you're going to do something for a country. And in return, he's going to do something to help your reelection. You don't honestly think that we haven't had presidents before who haven't done the same thing. Oh, we had Nixon. We had Nixon. We had Nixon uh, uh, kill kill the, uh, the, the, Vietnam, the Vietnamese peace talks. But we didn't find out about that until decades after the fact. And, and if we had known that Nixon was saying stop the peace talks until I so I can help. Win the election. Win yeah. the election. Win. If we had known that, I think there perhaps should have been an acceleration of an impeachment process. The personal dealing of President Trump, the personal dealing of his children on behalf of this business, which is totally incomprehensible to me, and one of his children is coming here to Georgia soon for Doug Collins. Has been, is, has been already is, here. Is, came and went. Yeah. Uh, is very upsetting to me. Of course, I am a political junkie. Now, when is it going to penetrate into the thoughts of folks out there who are totally distracted by this bad behavior of Congress? And I'm not going to say that President Trump and President Obama are equally at fault on their personal behavior. I don't think that's what you said either. But True. I think that... Uh, the distraction of the partisanship is very demeaning to any real political thought. All right. I got to interrupt because we've got to get to another break. Uh, we're going to do that right now and come back. Uh, we're going to look at the uh, Senate races in Georgia and where they stand and a lot more on Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Mary Margaret Oliver, Sam Olins, Amy Steigerwald, and Jim Galloway joined me on Political Rewind today. Uh, Washington Post, Tom Faust sent me a, a fact check on the open mic uh, that uh, Sam Olins talked about in the last uh, uh, segment. Uh, he was talking to uh, the president of, so of the Russia at the time, Dmitry Medvedev, and he said on all of these issues, particularly missile defense, this can be solved, but it's important for him, Putin, he means, to give me space. Medvedev replies, yes, I understand. So he says, uh, Obama says, this is my last election. After my election, I'll have more flexibility. The point he's making, Sam, is that he wants to try to solve issues like missile defense. It scares the hell out of me that the president would say that. Okay, okay. I just wanted to repeat, you know, uh, read what the how the Washington you know, we're, Post we're, reported. We're, we're, we're talking about the security of this country. You don't. An election should not alter that equation. Okay. Okay. I, okay. Um, you know, the president will never read it because he canceled a subscription to the Washington Post and the New York Times this week. He certainly talks about the New York Times. Still. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jim Galloway, uh, some Senate developments are kind of interesting. Uh, one of them is that A. Wayne Johnson, now you all reported in the jolt about this or the insider. A. Wayne Johnson is working. He's a Georgian. He's working 
He was working running the, uh, the, the loan arm of the Department of Education, the student loan, loan arm, and he has now quit that job uh, because he wants that Senate seat that Johnny Isaacson is giving up, so he's uh, putting his name in the hat. Might not be quite as important, but uh, he says he's going to run a platform of forgiving all student loan debt up to $50,000. I, I this is one of those things where, where a candidate's announcement is kind of burying the lead. Yeah. <laughs> you, ha you have, you have the, the fellow who has been in charge of overseeing federal student, the federal student aid program, and he says it is fundamentally broken, cannot be repaired, and most of these people are going to be carrying de uh, uh, debt that they will never pay back. Yeah. And it's a $1 trillion program, and he says it needs to be fixed. That's quite, if from an economic perspective, that's, that's a pretty scary statement right there. Yeah. Well, and it also comes as the Department of Education just got levied with, I think, a $1 million fine due to still collecting... 100000 um, 100000 sorry. Uh, collecting, uh, being held in contempt for collecting student loans from for-profit organizations where the court had ruled that you should not be collecting their loans because they had been predatory. I was in a coffee shop overhearing, listening to two baristas talking. One young man said he had $160,000 of college debt. Uh, a couple hours later, I was in my law office paying a college bill on behalf of a trusted trustee role I have, trying to understand the bill. It was a technical college bill, and they had $500 of fees yeah. on top of a $1,200 tuition. Yeah. And I'm relating to what other people around the kitchen table, the political kitchen table of real world, are really worried about. And I think, look, I think, you know, in this next year, uh, we are having younger voters assert themselves. Right, and exactly. I think among younger voters, this is probably, if it's not the number one issue, it's certainly number two. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, uh, I hope you left a pretty big tip for this guy who's $160,000 <laughs> debt. I was just stunned. <laughs> but the, but the, 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 the prospective candidate was talking about a $50,000 deduction if they had the debt or a $50,000 credit, credit. $5,000 credit if they I thought no, no, it was 50 it was 50 all right first, be, first thing I thought of was let's take economics 101 again yeah. to, be, to be paid for with a one one uh, 1% increase on uh, in in the corporate uh, corporate income tax so if we add that to Elizabeth Warren's increases I could then work for zero well there you go isn't that interesting that if we you know here's one reason Brian Kemp may not want to give this guy the job because <laughs> It does sort of undermine the Republican arguments about Medicare for all and who's going to pay for it. Indeed it does. All right. Uh, to no one's great surprise this week, uh, there was confirmation that Michelle Nunn has no interest in running for uh, the uh, either the David Perdue or the open Senate seat. She seems quite happy and from all accounts to be doing quite well uh, running CARE, sure. one of the world's most important uh, relief organizations. Yes. God bless her. But let me, let me say, if I can, uh, she used some in interesting language there. She said she was deferring any decision, mm -hmm. and that br brings a little a little wrinkle in this in, in in the in the race for Johnny Isaacson's seat. And that is that there there there, there are going to be two contests. There's going to be the November 20, uh, 2020 contest, probably followed by a runoff. But then whoever wins is going to have to stand for re-election in twenty twenty two, right? Mm -hmm. And that that could be a race she's got her eye on. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, Doug Collins, who did throw his hat in the ring, Jim, had a visit from Donald Trump Jr. They were up in North Georgia at a shooting event, I think. At, right? a, at a skeet shooting event uh, and a little little gab fest. A hundred people showed up there, maybe. Uh, and just hours earlier, of course, uh, Doug Collins had put out a, a tweet that that vociferously backed. Uh, the President Trump's objections to the impeachment inquiry. Yeah, you know, and Sam, that raises a question I wanted to. I mean, you don't you don't have to defend all Republicans uh, on this show, and and quite often you're you're very candid in not defending either side. Um, but the President on Tuesday uh, tells Republicans on the Hill, "Get tougher in defending me. Come on, you know." You're not being strong enough. Then he has a meeting with some of them uh, at the White House, and apparently uh, that's the same message he gives them then. And the next day, you have the insurgent group that rushes the skiff to try to get inside 
uh, with some of them with their cell phones. Uh, and you have Doug Collins, who has been a fierce defender of the president for a long time now. Nevertheless, he sees he's got to get back in the game. What is, what is the optics of that? So um, count me as one of the individuals who's actually sick and tired of the process or lack yeah. of process in D.C. I actually would like there to be an agenda. I actually would like to talk about infrastructure. I actually would like to talk about things that would improve our country. And zero of those things yeah. are occurring. Yeah. Isn't that what Nancy Pelosi kept urging her caucus I, on the House side? Um, uh, Mary Margaret, she was very reluctant to get into the impeachment business, finally persuaded, presumably uh, by the whistleblower uh, uh, talking about Ukraine. But I can't help but wonder if even at that point, in her need to appease growing concern in the caucus, there are nights when she wakes up and thinks, why did I give in to this? <laughs> well, we're in a bad position. She's in a bad position. Everybody's in a bad position. We have the President of the United States calling the State Department very respected gentleman, human scum. That's where we are. The President of the United States is calling Talbert human scum. And I can't get over that. that that's probably a problem for me, my personal <laughs> walking around life. I can't get over that. So Nancy Pelosi has said many times the facts are dictating what I have to do. And the facts are political, but they're also real. Is Rudy Giuliani going to be able to keep a law license? Is he going to be indicted? He has disappeared off television. The facts of what happened in, under the supervision of Secretary Pompeo, who recruited Mr. Talbot, uh, Taylor, 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 forgive me, Taylor. forgive me, um, is, is just incomprehensible how we can manage foreign policy and have any respect for the politicians in Washington that are supporting, supporting some of the facts that are undisputed that I know about today because of many different activities that part of what are part of some of which are partisan and not all of which are partisan. Well, and if I could also say, I mean, when it comes to Congress and doing stuff, um, the House at least has passed over 300 bills, um, including two different ones that they passed yesterday and they're not actually being brought up. On the other side, right, the Senate has also been doing work. For example, they confirmed um, another nominee on Wednesday to the federal district court. Uh, that brings them, I think, now to 151 that have been confirmed uh, during this period. And so, I mean, there actually is a lot well, of work going on. Then we we have to add to this the fact that to some extent the media is complicit because right. the media focus is clearly on the on the war that goes on in exactly uh, and they're Congress. not they're not following the fact that there is work going on we are almost out of time but you're a data geek uh, Amy yes. Steigerwald, so I want to get your reaction to two quick uh, uh, questions from the PRRI uh, annual survey yes. of uh, American values just came out this past week here's one of them this, uh, this hurt, we mentioned one about Democrats, the other one is about Republicans. Perceptions of the Democratic Party is capitalist versus socialist yep. by party, well, forget about party affiliation. Among all Americans, 53% say the Democrats are trying to make capitalism work for the benefit of the average American. But 44% say the Democratic Party has been overtaken by socialists. Now, of course, party, you know, linemen on that, Republicans are weighing in heavily on the other side. But still, and here's the other one, perception of the Republican Party as protectionist, protectionist versus racist. Mm -hmm. The Republican Party is trying to protect the American way of life against outside threats, 50 percent. Forty eight percent say the Republican Party has been taken over by racists. So everybody's message is getting across about the other side is what this it says really to me. It really is. And I mean, <laughs> what I was really struck by in the poll was how divergent the views were, particularly between Democrats and Republicans on every single question. Yeah. There was an agreement about what are the important Nothing. issues. There weren't agreement about where the policy are. I mean, it sh really does show that we're living in this time where polarization has really taken us to the extremes. And you've, and you've got a, a federal... Uh, budget crisis uh, looming, I think, what, in December? Yeah. No, no sooner hey, than that, actually. Hey, let's, I'm going to promote ahead. This is a great uh, research document. Let's dig into it a little bit more on, on Monday's show. Oh, okay. How about it? All There's right. lots of stuff we can talk about, but that's all we can talk about today. 
Uh, Mary Margaret Oliver, pleasure always thank to have you. you with us. Sam Olins, thank you for being here. Amy Steigerwald, you as well. And Jim Galloway, I'll see you Monday at 2 for Talking another political review. PRRI <laughs> will be on the agenda. Thank you all for being with us. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again, as I said, Monday at 2. Take care, everybody.